Um, but it's a re- really great to, to be here. Um, we're going to be doing some material. Some of it's based upon a book that I've just written called uh, Plugged In, um, where uh, copies are available, uh, I think. And it's uh, stuff that I've been teaching at Oak Hill for over 10 years. And it's on how do we engage the culture for Christ, how culture affects us, and how then we relate Jesus to the ordinary day things uh, that people are involved in. Because here's the thing, uh, normal people just aren't that interested in Christ. And how do we uh, connect with people and confront them with Jesus? And these things really matter. Um, One of the stats, it's interesting, I I said to Trevor just before we, we started with two minutes to go on the rugby, how can I possibly teach for two hours looking at how obsessed people were with watching the rugby today. And it's a challenge, and I think some of your heads will be still in the rugby. I know that. I know that. I'm trying to get reprogrammed myself. Um, but for some people, what's just gone on there, or what will be happening at 3 o'clock this afternoon, or a gig that someone, uh, that someone went to last night, that will be forming them completely. And we think, well, what does that matter? Surely people kind of, you know, don't think about these things. If we're not forming, we are being formed. One of the stats I have in here is that when England lose a football match, rates of domestic violence go up by about 25%. Now, that's how these things matter. Now, what does that say about us and the way that we are either forming or being formed? So that's what we're going to look at uh, today. We're going to do two sessions. I'm going to work you really hard. Both sessions are going to be at 45 minutes each with a five-minute break in the middle. So I hope you're ready. There's a handout that you should have. There's one for this session and there's one for the second uh, session. And I'm going to pray before we start. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is not silent but a God who speaks. We thank you that you speak through your word. And Lord, that we are to see the world through the word, not the other way around, Help us, Lord, that you would be forming us by your Spirit, even this morning, Lord, that we would go from here with uh, new eyes to see, uh, to present and proclaim the great gospel of Jesus Christ to a world where so many thousands and millions of people do not know him and are lost. Amen. God does not want grumpy old men and grumpy old women. There was a program a few years ago called Grumpy Old Men and then Grumpy Old Women uh, kind of to camera where celebrities would say how Britain and culture used to be so much better. Kids were so better behaved. Pavements were better. Dogs were better. Schools were better. Food was better. TV programmes were better. I think we can have that view as Christians especially those of us who are a little more mature, we look back to a time when we think, wow, wasn't evangelism easier? Weren't the the morals and the cultural state of the country, wasn't it a bit more civilised? As I go around the country and speak on some of this material, your average Christian, your average Bible-believing Christian, I think they're confused by what's going on in the world, they can't make sense of it. People are fearful, people are anxious, And we know that we live in that kind of society and we're not immune from it. I teach at Oak Hill College. Oak Hill College, I I know and I hope and I pray, has the, the cream of the crop of men and women coming for Bible training. But the amount of students, and these are the best, 
the amount of anxiety and depression and marital issues are huge. And that's okay. How do we make sense of the world around us? And one negative way, one way we shouldn't be, is just to be grumpy old men and women, looking back to a golden area. Friends, we are where we are. This is where God has placed you. Ecclesiastes 7.10, a great verse. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? It's not wise to ask such things. It's easy to look back with kind of tears down our faces to a time when Christianity was at the heart stream of our culture. And I still think there's many things that we, we, uh, are, are, we only celebrate in our culture because of the impact of Christianity. But very, very quickly what's happening is that Christianity has been detached from the cultural artery of our country with devastating effects, but we are to be faithful where we are. What God does want, I would argue, are men and women of Issachar. This is a passage you might not know in 1, Chronicle, uh, in, um, in 1 Chronicles. King David is calling together the different tribes to support him and he calls together the men of Issachar. And it says about them, they understood the times and knew what Israel should do. They understood the times and knew what Israel should do. They understood the context that they were in. A few years ago, there was a book written by two people, uh, Mayo and Noira, not Christians, but the book was called In Their Time, The Greatest Business Leaders of the 20th Century and they interviewed a thousand of the most successful business leaders to say, what is it that made these leaders, men and women, so successful? What was it? And they said there was one common denominator amongst all great leaders, regardless of age or industry. I quote, they possessed acute sensitivity to the social, political, technological and demographic context that came to define their eras. And they call this, the writers, contextual intelligence. After studying a thousand leaders, they came to the conclusion that contextual intelligence is an underappreciated but all-encompassing differentiator between success and failure. That's what the men and women of Ithaca were. They had contextual intelligence. They knew how to understand what was going on all around them. Jesus criticises the Pharisees uh, when Jesus was alive because they understood the weather patterns, but they didn't understand his significance. They didn't understand who Jesus was and Jesus has a go at them for that. We are to be men and women who understand where we are, who Jesus is, how Jesus relates to the world around us, how we understand the world. We understand a world where if 11 men or women kick a ball around and that determines whether someone's going to get beat up in the evening, that we understand why is that the case? Why do those things happen? So, God doesn't want grumpy old men and women. He does want men and women of Issachar. And I look around here and what a great potential for you to be men and women of Issachar. Now, here's the problem as we start. And I'm going to get to the heading of this section, Pochettino's Lemons, shortly. 
Who are we to believe when we try to understand the culture around us? I want to give an example of two uh, uh, philosophers or sociologists of religion, people who spend their time trying to understand the culture around us and try to put it in some kind of perspective. And these are two um, uh, people who are kind of come from the Christian tradition, Charles Taylor, who's a Roman Catholic, Rodney Stark, uh, who's, a, who, who's another uh, um, believer. And they both have, I think, views that are, are, um, can be helpful but what we're going to do is see what they say and then we're going to say, how does the Bible kind of correspond to that? But this, this might make sense to some of you. Charles Taylor is a philosopher who has argued that how do we understand what it means to be in a, what we call a secular society? Just turn to the person next to you and just say, if someone says we live in a secular society, what do we mean by the word secular? Just turn to the person next to you. Just with... 30 seconds. Okay, that'll do, that'll do. Right. The way that I work is that I get you to do a lot of work. So it's going to be more in the second session, but we'll do it now. So what do we mean by, what do we mean by the word secular? Someone put their hand up and, or just shout out, I don't care at this time. Yes. That the world's not flat. That the world's not flat. Yeah. Okay, good. Slightly left, left, left field answer, but yes, go on. Humanist and religious, yeah. Yeah. A world without church institutions, good, yeah. Right, freedom to believe what we want. Yeah, freedom to believe what we want. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, religion, yeah, good, okay. All, all right, in a sense, but sociologists of religion spend a lot of time trying to understand what the secular means. And Charles Taylor comes along and he says, look, a lot of people, when they say secular, they mean that there were lots of people going to church and involved with world religions and now they are less. But Taylor has a problem with that because he says it's not so simple. If, if religion's fading away, what, why is it that actually in some parts of the world religion's never been more popular? Why is it that things like ISIS are so popular? Why is it that evangelical Christianity in some ways still is flourishing? That can't simply be, secular can't simply be there are more people at church, now there are less people at church. The, the, the world is, seems more complicated than that. Okay, what about the view that the secular is to do with the fact, as was said over here, that you have the private sphere and the secular sphere and religion and kind of politics or the public square doesn't match. But that doesn't quite work for Taylor either because he says there's lots of people who get involved in public life because of their Christian faith. What Taylor means, and I think this is helpful to us, is saying the secular, the fact we live in a secular society does not simply mean... Um, what do we believe, but rather, what is believable? Let me say that again. The secular for Taylor is not about what, what we believe, it's about believability. He says, 400 years ago, it would be inconceivable to be an agnostic or an atheist. But now, we live in a society where there are so many different options that any kind of belief 
is both contested and contestable. And he says for that reason, he comes up with all kinds of very kind of philosophical terms, but he uses his own terms. He says that people today are what he calls cross-pressured. It's a bit like this. If I go into Chessington Town Centre, there is a town centre, isn't there, Trev? Yeah, kind of, yeah. Okay, if I go into Chessington, Chessington Town Centre and I Googled and I said, uh, I want to find the best Indian takeaway for tonight. Give me the ones that have five-star ratings. And I'll probably find three or four, but all of those three or four with five-star ratings will also have a one-star rating as well. Now, who am I to believe? And Taylor says that's the same as belief and religion, that, that there are so many options that he says, and this is a great word he uses, he says that people, men and women, are fragilised. That we do, people do believe in things, but they're fragile. Now, you, some of you may have become Christians very recently. Some of you who are uh, longer in the tooth may have been Christians for a long time, but I think that's a very astute comment by Taylor, that people are becoming Christians, but what's the nature of their faith? It's not, and this is where Taylor's brilliant, this is what we have to understand, it's not as if we are not secular and the world out there is kind of, is secular, it's the fact that secular, or the secular world is what we live and breathe and it's how we navigate faith through that. I think the reason why people are fearful and uh, their, 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 their faith is kind of, they find faith difficult is because we're living and breathing in a secular society all the time. And Taylor says there's been a triumph of what he calls scientism, the idea that as naturalism is this view, or materialism, not materialism that I'm going to go out and buy a Gucci bag, but materialism is that the material is all that there is. That's been an overwhelming influence. John Lennon was right. Many people think in the song Imagine, above us there is only sky, there is nothing else. So I think Taylor's onto something here, but, and this is a big but, Taylor has this idea to say, and he puts it like this, that the West in particular has become disenchanted. Disenchanted. But I think it's a little more complicated than that. And here we come to our second figure here, this guy called Rodney Stark. And Rodney Stark, he's a kind of a, he's a kind of a, I don't know what you'd call him. He's a great historian, but he kind of writes in a very kind of punchy, polemic way. This is what he says about the research that he's done in the West about what people believe in. He says, Europe, nor has Europe become disenchanted. He says, Europe isn't disenchanted. Multitudes of Europeans believe in ghosts, lucky charms, occult healers, wizards, fortune tellers, hulder folk, and a whole array of other aspects of that enchanted world that Taylor believes has long since vanished. What Taylor really demonstrates is that from nowhere is one's vision of modern times so distorted as from the confines of the faculty lounge. Oh, those bitchy academics, they kind of like having a go at each other, don't they? So Taylor, Taylor Stark says... All the, all the st statistics says that we're not disenchanted. Yes, there may be moving away from traditional religion, but his argument is that, no, people are as enchanted as ever, but they're differently enchanted. And I think this is going to be really important for us. Just this year, there's been a big study done called Understanding Unbelief, and it's 
um, looked at a, a lot of qualitative research of those who call themselves atheists and agnostics in uh, Japan, Brazil, uh, the US and the UK. I think it's the University of Kent that's been doing it. Here are the interim findings, two of the interim findings. And they've interviewed a lot of people. Unbelief in God doesn't necessarily entail unbelief in other supernatural phenomena. Atheists and less so agnostics exhibit lower levels of supernatural belief than do the wider populations. However, only minorities of atheists and agnostics in each of our countries appear to be thoroughgoing naturalists. And another common supposition, that of the purposeless unbeliever, lacking anything to ascribe ultimate meaning to the universe, also does not bear scrutiny. While atheists and agnostics are disproportionately likely to affirm that the universe is ultimately meaningless in five of our countries, it still remains a minority view among unbelievers in all six countries. You can have your Christopher Hitchens and your Richard Dawkins and your Stephen Fry's. I don't doubt there are some hardcore atheists out there. But I do not think that is where most normal British people are. Um, there was a book a few years ago by a guy called Julian Barnes called Nothing to be Scared of. Some of you may have heard of it. And here is how Barnes starts the book. Not a Christian, not a believer, who knows where he's coming from. This is how he starts the book. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. D doesn't that reflect more where the people who you know and love and work with and study with, they've got no time for God or Jesus or the Bible, but, but, but there's something they're restless in a way. And they show that in all kinds of things. Now, we come to Maurizio Pochettino. Maurizio Pochettino, for those of you who don't know, is the manager of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. I'll wash my mouth up later on, Trev. Okay? Now, here's the interesting thing about Maurizio Pochettino. You think of the, the money, the multi-million pound business that is a Premier League football club. You think about the science, the technology, everything planned down to the, to the minutest detail. And we found out a week before the Champions League final that in his office, Maurizio Pochettino has a bowl of lemons because he believes that when people come into his office, office with negative energy, the negative energy goes into the lemons. And so he changes the lemons every four or five days because he believes in what he calls energia universal. Nothing happens for causality. It's always a consequence of something else. This is one of the reasons why Harry Kane always seems to score in derbies. I believe in that energy. He's the manager of a Premier League club and he changes lemons every day because he believes there's a universal energy that gets negative energy gets sucked out into the lemons. Do we live in a disenchanted society? I don't doubt that naturalism and materialism is, is common, but there's something more going on. There's something more complex than simply saying we are not religious. And that's what we're going to be looking at. Because amazingly, the Bible, I think, helps us to try and, un try and see how we are both religious and not religious at the same time. 
Now, for this to work today, I want to have in your mind, so we ground it, you don't have to tell other, other people, but just think of someone who you would love them to know Jesus Christ, but you just don't think you're getting anywhere with them in terms of your evangelism or witness. It might be someone from your family, it might be someone you work with, it might be a friend, it might be a colleague. And as I'm going through the talk today, just try and think about how would this person answer those questions. And when we do group work, again, you can anonymise their name, you don't have to talk about them. But just think about that person, rather than some the abstract non-Christian, think about someone who's, who's, who, who you know. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to spend this first session, the rest of this session, I'm going to give you a kind of a biblical framework in which we try to understand the culture around us, how it works. And then in the second session, we're going to do some worked examples, uh, use a kind of a bit of a toolkit as to how we then we confront and connect um, the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to the ways that people view the world. So that's the plan, okay? So we'll follow it in the handout. The first thing, very important, is that we interpret the world through the word. We interpret the world through the word. Psalm 36, 9 says, In your light do we see light. Now, I'm interested in sociology and psychology and ethnography and all these things are really important, but at the end of the day, they all sit under what the Bible says about the world. The Bible gives us the glasses to see without which the Bible, the, through the Bible we learn about Jesus Christ and we become Christians. So it's through the Bible that we, we have the eyes to see. We meet Jesus in the Bible. There are loads of other Jesuses out there. The only Jesus that is authentic is the one in this book, these 66 books. But the Bible doesn't only give us sight, it gives us light to see as well. It gives us the glasses through which we see the world. And that's why when I'm talking about things to do with how we see the world, it's quite counterintuitive because uh, we don't often... Well, he, here's the thing. Those of you who wear glasses will understand this. I've had about five or six pairs of glasses in the last ten years. For me, it's a traumatic experience getting a new pair of glasses. Every pair of glasses is ex so different. Ellie, my wife, says, Dan, they look exactly the same as the last pair. No, they're radically different! Here's the thing though, when you buy a new pair of glasses, for the first, I don't know, couple of hours, what's, what can you see? You see the new frames, you see the frame. After that, you don't see the frame at all, you're not looking at the glasses, you're looking through the glasses. And that's the same as doing any kind of study like this about worldview. Because people don't think about worldview, they think with their worldview. I say this to Oak Hill students, I say this to other people as well. I doubt, think about the, the, the non-Christian you're thinking about. I doubt they are in a parallel session thinking about what it means to be a non-Christian today. <laughs> they're just living their lives. They've gone to watch the rugby this morning and they're going to get drunk this afternoon or they're going to do something else, they're going to go out with their family or they're going to go to work. They're not thinking about these big questions. We are because we're weird Christians. We are because we're learning how to see through the Bible. But, so we are to interpret the world through the word. Now, how does the world work in this way? And I want to give it in the, the kind of the context of um, a cosmic game of hide and seek. A cosmic game 
of hide and seek. Um, now, I, f- I take it we're all familiar with the game of hide-and-seek. I say this, I was speaking in, in Italy a few weeks ago through a translator, and Italians don't really know what hide-and-seek was, so the illustration absolutely fell flat, and it ended up with this guy giving a 10-minute explanation of hide-and-seek, which just ruined the whole thing. So, okay, hide-and-seek. We think, or our society thinks, or Western culture thinks now, that in the cosmic game of hide-and-seek, God is hiding. In fact, God has found a really great place to hide. Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, he went up, he came down and he said, I've been up there and there's no one there. In fact, God has had such, found such a good place to hide, it's much more plausible to believe that God doesn't exist. Is that what we are told when we look through the Bible at the world? No, it's not. If you've got a Bible with me, turn to Romans 1. 18. God is not hiding. Romans 1, 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God is not hiding. I believe this passage in Romans 1 is telling us what the real situation is. God has made himself clear, he's manifested himself to everyone, including the peer person you're thinking about this morning. Since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities have been revealed. Now, let's break this down. Two aspects, I think, to this revelation. One, we are made to relate to God. All human beings are made to relate to God. We are made in God's image. Genesis 1.27 makes that very clear. What is revealed in Romans 1? Well, two things, God's eternal power and divine nature. Why, why does Paul, who wrote this passage, wrote this letter, why does he concentrate on those two characteristics? I think this is something, we'll pick this up in the second session, but two things I think, God reveals himself to every single person, so much so that they can't say, I've got an excuse, because that's what it says in the passage, they're not, they're without excuse. His eternal power, I think that's the idea that deep down we know that we are dependent creatures on something or someone. We are dependent. I think that's what eternal power is getting across. And then the, the idea of divine nature. God has revealed himself not just as an it or a what, an impersonal force, but there's an idea that God has a nature. There's the idea of accountability. So I think what God reveals to all human beings, and we'll see what people do with this knowledge in a minute, but God has revealed that we are dependent creatures and that we are accountable to God. Dependence and accountability. One is to do with the nature of being, the fact that uh, we, we rely on God for our existence, but the other is a moral thing that we are accountable to him because he has made us. 
So we're made to relate. We're also made to cultivate. As God's image bearers, what theologians call the cultural mandate, when God makes Adam and Eve, he says you are to fill the earth and subdue it. You are to have a dominion. I think the idea here is that God in Genesis 1 is a speaker and a maker. He makes human beings in his image and human beings speak and make. What's the first thing that Adam does when he's being created? He classifies the animals. It's, the, it's zoology, it's science. What's the second thing Adam does? When he's put into a sleep, Eve is taken out of his rib and when Adam sees the beauty of Eve, what does he do? He doesn't write a mathematical treatise, he makes a poem. This is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. The foundation of arts. Human beings are people who make things. This is really important. This is what culture is for me. It's what human beings do and make it. It's how we make a home for ourselves. It's the decisions that we make about leaving North London at at quarter to seven this morning because I wanted to get here to watch a rugby game before teaching. It's the decisions you make about what you're going to study, what you're going to do with your leisure time, how you're going to educate your children, who you're going to go out with, what clothes you wear. That's who we are as human beings. Samuel Johnson, a famous writer, said this, think about it, no beast is a cook. Animals eat, but only human beings cook because we're made in God's image in a way that the rest of creation is not. And so we plan, and so we have purposes, and so we have dreams and goals, and we we make a world for ourselves and we say, this is what I think about the world, what do you think? So we're made to relate and we're made to cultivate. So, our game of cosmic hide and seek. God's not hiding. God has made himself very clear. Here's the thing. We are hiding. What's the first game of hide and seek in the Bible? It's in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve hide from God. And God says, where are you? Now, The God that I believe in is all-powerful and all-knowing. When the Bible says, when God says, where are you? It's not that God doesn't know. Of course God knows. He's God. But it's a moral question. He knows and they know because they hid, because they were ashamed. And we are hiding from God. And Romans 1, the passage that I read just now, makes that very clear. What have we done with the truth that God has revealed? We've suppressed it. We've, we've run away from God. We've said, I don't want to be dependent upon God. I want to be independent. We've said, I don't want to be accountable to anyone else. I'm only accountable to myself and certainly not God. And so we suppress the truth. And because of that, there's a relational breakdown. And rather than doing things based on God's design in the world and doing things for his glory and his honour, because it's good for us, and working to God's blueprint, we've become cultural rebels. And this is the situation we find ourselves in at the moment. Here's what one writer says, Jonathan Lehman, the public square is a battleground of the gods, and people will always fight for their idols and gods, their objects of worship. The reason we live in a very confused society at the moment is that people are worshipping all kinds of different goals and ends and we cannot agree on anything. 
It's a very strange society that, that we live in. And the only way that governments can get things done when you have people believing all kinds of different things is you have to make laws so that people are forced to do it. So here we have a weird situation where I can choose not just who I go to bed with, but who I go to bed as. The difference, I suppose, between sexuality and gender. But yet, I say this about Oak Hill, as uh, we're, we're affiliated to a, a, a university, but the thing that is killing Oak Hill, or will continue to kill Oak Hill, as many of you who know who work in any kind of um, education sector or business sector, is bureaucracy, it's administration, it's what's known as juridification. Because to get things done when people don't agree, you have to make laws. And that's the weird situation. We live in a, in a very overly burdened administrative society and yet on other things we're told we have the freedom to be who we want to be. How do those things go together? Well, they go together because of this. Now, what do we do with the truth that God has revealed? Well, Romans 1 tells us we suppress the truth. We suppress it. But the, the image here in Romans 1 is that of uh, someone holding someone's head under the water to drown them. God has revealed himself. He's revealed He is a good God. He's revealed that we are dependent upon him, we are accountable to him, and we've taken that truth and we've drowned it. We suppress the truth. And then we substitute that truth with all other kinds of things. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. God has revealed himself. Now here in our passage, because of that, God has revealed not just kind of a neutral information. He's revealed that his wrath that is to say, God is not happy with what has gone on. God gives human beings warning signs. Um, I, I describe it like this. Uh, the Bible talks about uh, the day of judgment when Jesus is coming again. And the Bible's shorthand for that is the day of God's wrath, God's righteous anger. And the picture is that one day God's wrath is being stored up and one day on that day of judgment the whole thing's going to come down. It's a terrifying picture. And in Romans 2, there's the, the issue that people think that God is not bothered about the, the, our rebellion and they're walking around thinking it's going all okay. And Paul says, no, the wrath of God is being stored up. That's a terrible image. But in our passage here in Romans 1.18, look at the verse. It doesn't say the wrath of God will be revealed. It says it's being revealed. It's as if... If you imagine God's wrath is, is, is being stored in this huge tarpaulin or canvas and one day the whole thing's going to come down but God has got a penknife and put a little slit in it and now we see drops of wrath now. Because God is warning us. God is saying something is not right. And God shows that in all kinds of different ways. He shows that something has gone wrong. 
Now, supremely in Scripture, he shows that by the fact that human beings don't just get old and infirm and middle-aged and balding and get a paunch. But he shows it the fact that people die. If you read something like Psalm 90 in your quiet time, go and read Psalm 90 this evening. It's very clear, this is what God's word says death means. Death is a limitation on people who want to be like God. Death is saying, you're not like God, in fact, I might give you 70 or 80 years. Death is saying something is wrong. Death is not natural. Now, why do I say this? Because this is what the Bible teaches us about death. But death isn't just an experience for Christians. We all experience death. But what we do, what sinful human beings do, God's revealed that death means something. We take that truth, we drown it, or we get a big fat graffiti pen and we mark and we graffiti all over it. Just in your pairs, again. How does our society understand death? If death, if God is saying, if death is God's megaphone saying, something has gone wrong, you need to turn around, you need to listen, this is not how it should be. How do we in our culture get the graffiti and graffiti over that message? How do we understand death in our culture? In pairs, just for a minute. You are the best. You right? You want a hand, handout? You want a handout? Did you want a handout? You want a spare handout? Spare handout. Oh, they're gone. That's fine, don't Okay, okay. So, God, in his word, tells us lots of things about what human death means. What does our society tell us what death means? Who wants to share some stuff? Yes, death is the circle of life. Lion King reference. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes, yes, it's a natural process, but one that we we kind of resist at the same time. Brilliant. Other things? Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's unclouded, just smoothly going for in in the room ne- next door. What else? What what about Western culture especially? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah, so again, it's a tension between saying, with the, we accepting it, but also, and it's the thing, denying it. Western, we don't like talking about it. Um, now, here's the interesting thing. Often, it, the way we deal with death um, goes in two directions. This idea that we either kind of think that, we, we deny that it's happening, and we prettify it, we make it beautiful. When it's not, it's terrible and awful. Or 
we kind of think, there is no hope, it's terrible. And this is why, do you know what, one of the best witnesses, and I think Trevor and John T will know this, one of the best witnesses is being part of or taking a funeral of a Christian believer. Why? Because you have both the recognition that something has gone wrong. Jesus wept when his best friend Lazarus died. He was sad. Death is horrible. And there is hope. Because for the Christian believer, we believe in the resurrection. Of, we believe in the resurrection. We believe in new life. And when you have a Christian funeral, you have both of those things at the same time. And do you know what? Normal people who do not know that do not understand that. My boss, uh, Mike Ovey, died three years ago um, in, in January. But his funeral was one of the most amazing Christian witnesses to that. Man, I have never cried so much about someone dying, ever. And yet, I'm crying with hope. That is a countercultural thing. We had someone who, um, we run a playgroup at our uh, church, and one of the mums... Uh, um, tragically died, leaving two, um, two small kids. And I wasn't there, but one of our church members went to the funeral. And it was a, it was a denial of death. The, these two kids were encouraged to go round the coffin with party poppers. To, Let's make a party out of this. It's a denial of what's happened. On the other hand, you, I've been at places where uh, uh, an unbeliever dies and everyone is an unbeliever and there is just absolutely no hope. Now, all we're doing here is we're engaging culture. We are saying, this is what God says about the world, this is what death means according to the, the world, and our job is to amplify that message. God writes messages in the world, his wrath and his blessing. Again, let's take the idea of blessing. God has given people amazing gifts. We're meant to take those gifts and say, wow, I've been given a gift, and uh, there must be a giver. But is that how we treat the gifts that God's given us? Um, any musicians here? I did, a, I did a house party for the Royal Northern College of Music years ago. And the Christians there, the one thing that they struggled with, which they realised was so difficult being a Christian musician, was the level of jealousy, competition, bitchiness, fighting... It should be that someone gets a gift, an amazing musical gift, and they say, I've got this amazing gift. Do you know what I'm going to do with this gift? I'm going to thank the person who gave it to me, and I want to use my musical gift to serve others. I do not think that's how a lot of orchestras function. <laughs> yeah? But again, God has given us those good gifts, but we've given our own interpretation. We said, no, this is my gift. I'm so wonderful, and I don't care who I have to step over to get to that principal position in the orchestra, for example. So we suppress the truth and we substitute it for all kinds of other things, good things that are not God things. Again, just to get this concept in, here are a few other ways to illustrate it. Imagine you're, um, going, uh, imagine you're swimming in the sea on holiday. Picture that. You play a game. This is a game that you've played. You play a game where you try and sit on a beach ball in the sea. What happens? What happens? You fall off. What happens to the beach ball? It, fl it flicks away and it pops back up again. It's a great game, yeah? <laughs> God is revealing himself. Imagine the beach ball is God's revelation. We're trying to sit on it, suppress the truth. 
But it don't, can't say completely suppressed. Because if it was completely suppressed, we'd have an excuse and we don't. And God continues to reveal himself. So there's like a divine human game that's going on all the time in culture. God reveals himself, we suppress. It pops up again. God reveals himself, we suppress. And that's going on all the time. Or the fact that we're in, made in the image of God is like one of those trick birthday candles. You know when you try to blow it out, it comes back up again? Very annoying, Yeah? That's the image of God in men and women. That non-Christian you're thinking about today who you've got absolutely nowhere with, they are made in God's image and they can never put out that birthday candle. Oh, they try and snuff it out with their fingers, they try and nuke it, they try and do all they can to snuff it out, but they can't because they're made in God's image. While your friend remains a human being, They have the image of God in them and that's why they need to be respected and loved. That's why they have dignity, however depraved they may be. That's an encouragement to us because I think sometimes we're thinking, how on earth am I going to ever be able to talk about Jesus to these people? They have no interest. It's not, in fact, you would love it if they actually came up with some really deep objections to the Christian faith but that's not, you'd thank God for that. No, the issue is, many people today, they are just not interested. It's not just their, in some ways it's worse. They're just kind of, you know, flatlining when it comes to thinking about anything religious. But God says that's not how they are made. They are in a relationship with God. They are suppressing the truth. Now this leads us to this idea of idolatry I suppose. Sin isn't only doing bad things, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life on anything, even a very good thing more than God. Whatever we build our lives on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. Friends, because we are made to, because we are made, because we are created, we don't function as gods very well And so we always put our trust in other things, even if that includes ourselves. But we want to trust, we trust our football club, we trust our government, we trust education. We put our our hopes and dreams into all kinds of other things. And often those things, always those things are good things. But they're not, they can't function as God themselves. Idols are to be found at the level of ultimates. Think about the person you're thinking about today, your worked example. What's their, who's, what would you say is their ultimate authority? What are their ultimate commitments? What do they wake up and think about in the morning? What drives them? What are their hopes? What's their best hope? What's their worst nightmare? What, are they, what do they desire? Without naming them, just turn to the person next to you and what are the things that you're, you're coming up with when you think about your, your friend?
Okay, let's come back together again. Just shout out some of the some of the things. Shout out some of the, the subject matter that you were talking about. Pardon? Relationships? Career progress? Money? Family? Themselves? Now look. Now I know we're good Christian people. You might say all oh, those things are terrible. Those things are all good things. Family's a gift from God. We, we, we're, uh, human beings are, are, are amazing in, at one level. The idea of protecting your family or of education, entertainment, all these are good things, but they're subordinate goods to ultimate goods. The ultimate good being God. And whenever you take something that's good and you make it into God, it will not be able to function as a God. It will not give you what only God can give. And that's why we have so much mania and addiction because if you try and get meaning out of something that can't give ultimate meaning, you're going to shake that thing harder and harder. Or you're going to move to something else. And so, human beings are in a kind of a fantasy horror. They're what, in Ephesians 2, they call it, people are kind of the, the walking dead. They're in a living nightmare. And it's also tragically comic. In, uh, in Isaiah 44, there's a great passage where um, God, who is the Holy One of Israel, is contrasted to the worthlessness of idols. And we have this great picture in Isaiah 44, you can turn it if you want to, um, of um, the idolater, someone who doesn't worship God, who worships an idol. And I, I, Isaiah kind of is coming along and just making fun of, of this person. And they, they've made um, wood for the fire, they cook their meal on the wood, and then they take the rest of what they've used to make their dinner and they make a god out of it and they start worshipping it. And Isaiah says, this is ridiculous. Verse 18 of Isaiah 44, um, or verse 17. From the rest he makes a god his idol, he bows down to it and worships, he prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. They know nothing, they understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. Here is the verse that is so important. Remember this verse. No one stops to think. You are here today and you are stopping to think. Normal people, normal British people, the people that we engage with every day, London in general, People do not stop and think. They're just living their lives. And I'm going to argue that one of the things that we have to do as Christians is gently, in love, which sometimes does mean confrontation, it sometimes means saying hard things, we've got to get people to stop and think and show them the futility, the folly of what they are doing because it's going to kill them. That's our job. That's what I try and teach at Oak Hill. How do we get people to stop and think? Because people are not doing that. In a in a Jeremiah chapter two, there's this picture. Um, how much it's, for the, it's, it's focused on the people of God, but how much more of those outside the covenant community? And um, God says, "My people, um, be appalled, heavens! My people have committed two sins. They've turned from the fount of living water, and they've turned to." pots, cisterns that cannot hold water. So the picture of someone who's trying to get water out of a stagnant, 
dirty pot. When there's a fount of living water here. And again, my argument is what we have to do as Christians, just as uh, telling one beggar, another beggar where to find bread. It's not that we're better than other people. We've been saved by grace. But our job is to gently take people, people who are on their hands and knees who are trying to lick up stagnant water that's going to kill them in this life and for eternity and to gently turn them around and show them we've got a fount of living water. Now how do we do that? Well, we're going to be learning how to do that in the second session. Okay, let's hurtle towards a conclusion then we'll have a couple of minutes break. Here's the thing. The Bible is very clear that human beings are messy, complex individuals. Romans 1 says people know, they know God. And yet in Acts 17, when Paul speaks to the Athenians, he says that they are ignorant. Paul gets to Athens in Acts 17. He's not even meant to be there. He's waiting for his friends. He's on a stopover. And it says Paul was distressed by the idolatry that he saw. Literally, a city submerged in idolatry. The only time a city is described in that way in the New Testament. And Paul has, we would use the term, or some of us may use the term, kind of, he's dist- I mean, distressed in the NIV. It's not really what's, been got to, what's meant. It's a paroxysm. He's nearly violently ill by the idolatry he sees. Not because he thinks he's a wonderful person, but he loves God so much. He loves God's glory and he hates to see people giving their glory to created things. Friends, you you are part of a church in in the heart of London, a city submerged in idolatry. We need to be distressed and I'm distressed that we are not as distressed as we should be. Because we just kind of, we may come to the globe, have a great time, even get involved, but are we distressed like Paul was when he overlooks the city and sees it submerged in idolatry? We're not mucking around. There are eternal things going on here. Now, what does Paul do? Does Paul, says, does Paul say, stuff it, I'm off. Don't care, I'm going to leave these people in it. I'm just going to get on. I might meet with my Christian friends. We might go into a holy huddle. We're going to have a great time together. We're going to cling on, wait for Jesus to come. No, he does what he always does. He engages them. He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the, uh, and starts talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, They say, you are a babbler. Literally, you are a seed picker. We do not understand what you are talking about. And so Paul gets dragged in front of the kind of, uh, in the public square to give this uh, uh, fantastic speech that I could spend hours on, but I'm going to spend about two minutes on it now. He says, people of Athens, I see you are very religious. Now that word in the original, in the Greek, is, it's very hard to know what it means because it only appears once, ever. It's almost a word that's been made up. It could mean, I see that you are religious being a positive sense. It could be like the, a kind of a handshake. I see you're very religious. Or it could be, More like, I see you're very religious, kind of taking the mick, superstitious. Do you know what? I think, given everything we've said so far, I think Luke and Paul chose that word carefully. I think it means both. I think Paul, what's happening in Athens is that men and women have all these billion different gods and yet they still are hedging their bets with an unknown god just in case they haven't covered everything. And Paul says, I see you're very religious. 
what you believe in ignorance, I'm now going to proclaim to you. I don't think this is a handshake. I think it's more the contact of a rugby scrum. It's that kind of contact. Paul has to start somewhere. He starts where they're at and he builds out talking about the God of the Bible from that unknown God. He's not affirming. Later on in that passage, it talks about people reaching out and finding God. And uh, the, the, the image, though, is a negative one. The, the images of, in, in Greek mythology, or Roman Greek, the Cyclops who's been blinded. Who blinded the Cyclops? Classics person, come on. Thank you, Odysseus, thank you. Be worried if we didn't have anyone who didn't know that. Odysseus blinds the Cyclops and the Cyclops is groping around. And that's the, that's the image that Paul gives. Your, your non-Christian friends are like that. They are searching for something, but they're looking for it all over the place. They're blind. They're groping around. That's what the unknown God is. And Paul says, what you believe in ignorance, I'm now going to proclaim to you. And Paul finishes that great passage with a call to repentance. Here's the interesting thing. Lots of people say about Acts 17 that it's Paul getting kind of contextual and touchy-feely and, oh, isn't it wonderful? Paul does all of those things. I, I spend my life trying to do that kind of analysis. But that passage in Acts 17 is bookended by two things. Paul being violently ill by idolatry and at the end calling people to repent. That ain't no touchy-feely, yeah? Whatever goes on in the middle of that passage, it's been bookended by the call to repentance, to turn around from this ignorant way of life and come to Jesus. And here's the thing, here's the thing that was, uh, struck me a few years ago looking at that passage, that the resurrection in Acts 17 is not about bunnies, a vague concept of new life, it's the resurrection is proof that Jesus is coming to judge. It's a judgment passage. He has set a day when he will judge. He has shown this by raising Jesus from the dead. In conclusion, a few things to note before we have a two-minute break. Firstly, I want you, I want you to recognise that God has impersonally involved himself with every human being. When you enter a conversation with someone who you're trying to talk to about the Lord Jesus Christ, they already know God, they're already in a relationship with him. Now, I'm not talking about what you say to them. It will annoy them if you say, oh, you're in a relationship with God already. We're giving theological analysis here, yeah? We're giving theological analysis. But you, you, you know that that is, that is true. A warning... We're not to be too optimistic. I mean, I think spirituality is all around there, all around. But unless people repent, the, here, here's the thing. Some people, our sociologist friend, Rodney Stark, I think sometimes he gives the impression that, yes, we, we, we're not disenchanted, we are enchanted, and that's a good thing. Well, do you know what? If we're enchanted in the wrong things, it's just as bad. People, believe, people, I do believe that we are, we live in an enchanted society and in some senses we can use that to, to uh, kind of link to the gospel but in a way that people have to still repent. It, it's idolatrous that you would believe that negative energy has to go into lemons to be squeezed, to be changed every four days. 
But the amount of that kind of superstition will do some of it in the next few minutes. Or a cultish believers, a cultish belief, or tarot. These things are very, very popular. And I suppose an action plan, and in, if you get a copy of Plugged In, available at all good Christian bookshops, then um, I, I try and work through how you might do some theological analysis on, um, on everyday cultural things that people are involved with. So in this book, I nick it from all, all, all my students. Um, four examples, worked examples, we look at adult colouring books, zombies, Japanese toilets, bird watching, that's what, how we... Um, and there's a little way that you can, a little way of doing that Enter, explore, expose, evangelize. But finally here I want to talk about an encouragement. Cosmic game of hide and seek. God is not hiding. We are hiding. Do you know what? And I don't mean this in a blasphemous way. God is a rubbish hider. Have you ever played hide and seek with a three-year-old? Terrible! You, you explain the rules to them about ten times. You say, go and hide. They hide in a different room. You go into the room they're hiding in and they, you hear a noise and they just burst out and jump and say, here I am. No, you're meant to be hiding. In Jesus Christ, God is jumping up and down saying, here I am. And people are saying, oh, God's hidden. Hello? Jesus is saying, here I am. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. God is not hiding. We are hiding. God's not a great hider. But he is the best seeker. When I was about six or seven, we played hide and seek in my house and I found a great place to hide right behind the sofa right at the back and I couldn't understand why after five minutes, ten minutes, an hour, two hours the kind of joy of my parents turned into sheer terror and at that point I knew they were so cross with me I wasn't coming out for anyone (laughs) and then after about two hours my dad looked under the sofa and he must have seen a bit of sock and he pulled me out The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. We were lost and dead. But God sends his Son on a seek and rescue mission. We are hiding, but God is the best seeker. And that's an encouragement for you as you want to talk to Jesus about your friends in your own life as well to see what Jesus has done for you.